You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, everybody. So thanks to a technical glitch, we just found out that a whole bunch of you didn't get the news that the early bird pricing for the Producers Perspective Pro Super Conference ended last week. Yep, it was supposed to be last week. But because of the technical screw-up, we have extended the early bird pricing. You can save up to $200 if you register for the Super Conference by this Sunday. July 23rd, but that's it. After that, price goes up. Go to theproducersperspective.com backslash conference, register today, and we'll see you in November. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kentdavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kentdavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. My name is Ken Davenport. This is the Producers Perspective Podcast. We have a very special guest today, so thanks for joining us. He has been an actor, director, producer on both sides of this country. He is Mr. Don Sorino. Welcome, Don. Thank you, Ken. Good to here. So Don is an actor. He's been in a ton of Broadway shows. One of his most notable appearances was as Jesus in the original company of Godspell for how many performances did you do this show? Over a thousand performances. Over a thousand performances. He went on to direct on Broadway, including Few Good Men and Lennon, which he conceived and wrote as well. Went on to direct a ton of television, including a bunch of shows you've never heard of, like Law and Order. How many episodes of Law and Order, Don? Uh, dozens and dozens, uh, from season one to season 17 only. Uh, <laughs> also directed for 30 Rock, Two Broke Girls, and so many others. So, Don, obviously you got started in the theater. When did you get bit by the bug? The first I, time. I was bitten and infected forever. When I was five years old, I, my babysitter was at the high school performing arts, and she was cast in a production of Kismet, Paper Mill Playhouse. So my parents took me and my brother, and we went, and we sat in the second row, and when the princesses of the Adelaide Blue, I think that's what they're called in Kismet, came dancing out, there's my babysitter, Judy, on the stage, all made up and looked great. She winked at me, and I made this connection, like, wait a minute. Babysitters do this. People you know do this. And so I was transfixed, watching Judy dance around. And then afterwards, we went backstage, and Evelyn Hodge, the beggar, the star of the show, was pulling his beard off, and sets were being pushed aside, and the ghost light was being put out. That was it. I was done. I said, that's it. Five years old. Wow. So what was the first time on stage for you after five? Five and a half were you like? <laughs> Close. I mean, I hocked my parents mercilessly. They were musicians, so they were both inclined to let me be an actor, but also, you know, not so inclined because they were in the business in a way. But I started acting, uh, I think around age 12, I started doing children's theater downtown, off little off-off, off-Broadway type stuff, and then got my equity card in the production of Critics' Choice with Hans Condry, who was the old Uncle Knus on the Danny Thomas show, and, uh, and Ethel Chute, who was Jack Benny's first sidekick on radio. And I was, again, just bitten really hard. I came back with an equity card. I went to the audition, which was an equity audition. They said, are you equity? I said, sure. And they said, well, you know, you have to sign in. I said, oh, my mom has that, and she's not with me. So I went and read, got the part, ran down to equity, all of 13 
13. Yeah, I used to knock on doors in this very building. I got a list of equity franchise agents from Actors Equity Association. I knocked on doors in this very building. Oh, my name is Don Scarnino. Here's my picture. You know, that I had my brother's friend take totally fictitious resume on the back. And, uh, you know, today I would have been killed quickly. But, you know, ultimately landed a, a manager on West 45th Street, a woman named Muriel Carl, who had a bunch of kid actors, and um, just kept working, just started working. You were knocking on doors as a kid. I was. What made you think you had the confidence to pull this off? <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, I did. I used to sing on the steps of my house for the neighbors. And uh, they used to like it. Nobody threw anything. They waited till I was finished with the song, you know, and they would applaud. And I thought, well, I must be good. And I, I you know, I just, just did that. Even then, he knew, just knew this was the life for me. And I kept at it. And I think, I'm going to say 15, so that's like three years, two, three years in, I got the guiding light, 15 or 16, guiding light 16. And I was on TV every day of the week, live, black and white, 15 minutes long on CBS. And I was making more money than my dad. Who was a jazz musician? And did you know that at the time? You were like, huh? Well, he finally told me, you know, he did a peak one day. Now, a lot of childhood performers either don't go on to success later in life in the business as an actor. You seem to make that transition okay. Why do you think that was? Well, there's a couple of things. One, I always looked younger. You can tell the folks at home that even though I'm 90, I look like a young 68. You know, so I was playing all these juveniles, really. And, and then these guys started coming to town out of college. You know, it was uh, Kevin Pine, Bill Hurt. These guys, they became friends, but they were all like zooming past me and playing young dads. And, you know, and I'm still playing, you know, can I have the keys to the car? I was still stuck in this juvenile thing. So that was number one. I thought, maybe this is not exactly the right fit. And then... um Played Jesus and God's Bill for all that time. And that kind of was the greatest experience I've ever had, but also kind of ruined me because it's like, well, what's going to be better than this? Even Hamlet doesn't sing. You know, Hamlet doesn't get to do a soft shoe and orange sneakers. So I thought, well, what's going to, and, and so I was kind of becoming disaffected. And I did a play called How I Got That Story by Hamlet Gray, the second at the West Side Art. And it was a big hit. Me and Bob Gunson, two actors, played the entire war of Vietnam. Great play. And um, a great review. And about two days after we opened, with all these wonderful personal reviews for both of us, I found myself, you know, do you have an up and a ballad to go sing for, you know, I don't know, over here or something? You know, I thought, wait, don't you ever get a leg up? You know, so that was step two in my discipline. Then finally, the guy who wrote How I Got That Story suggested that I direct at the, talk about off-Broadway, at the Manitoba Theater Center, you know, north of North Dakota. It's way, way up there. And uh, so I went and I, I thought, sure, I was so flattered to be asked. So I just thought, well, I'll just, you know, do read now for New York Show. And it, I got up there, it was a thrust stage. And uh, New York Show was a proscenium stage. I realized, oh, I have to completely restage this. I have to have to come up with my own ideas. And I had the best time. And I went from being juvenile to being dead. And it was so nice. It felt so good. And so I came back to town and Steve, oh, ran the uh, thing called the Manhattan Punch Line, which was on Theater Row. He asked me to direct it. Foster, we heard I've been directing, and then Carol Rothman, who knew I've been directing, so she directed uh, originally uh, How I Got the Story. She asked me to direct uh, Kathy and Mo, Kathy and Jimmy and Mo Gaffney, who wanted to take their comedy act onto the theater format. So I did that, and next thing you know, I was off. So I, I obviously want to talk a lot about this continued transition of yours as a director, but the Godspell fans out there will kill me if I don't back, will crucify me, I can say, <laughs> if I don't back up a little bit and talk about that experience and how could you get better than this. What what was it like being part of that show? Did you have any idea when you were doing it that it would become a show that's still so widely performed and produced today? Uh, well, some. In that, I joined the, joined the show. The show had been done at Carnegie Tech, Carnegie Mellon. And then um, 
it came into town with the folk songs that they that Carnegie. You probably know all the sounds that folks at home do. And then um, we went to the to a mama, and basically the kids from school came and did the show. Fellow uh, played Jesus with a fellow named Andy Roller. He didn't because he was he had a minor pot in Pittsburgh, so he, so he had to stay still behind. Still regretting it. <laughs> yeah. So um, they finally did come into the New York show, but anyway, so so the show was I got to see the show and think you know when and then Schwartz came in when he moved it to the Cherry Lane Schwartz wrote the score kept by myself in the original, and um, so I got to see it in its original form with the new songs and be blown away by. It. This is just amazing. Cut to, I'm working in Canada on a movie. I'm friends with Victor Garbo, who's in the Toronto production of Godspell. And he said, I just got the movie, and I can't leave these kids in the lurch. Literally, he had just opened the show like two weeks earlier at the Royal Alex in Toronto. That company was Marty Short, Eugene Levy, Andrea Martin, Paul Shaver, and Timor. I mean, it was an amazing group of people. And he said, I can't leave. He said, you're the guy. You're the guy. So I'm told, never actually asked Stephen this, but I'm told that Schwartz had wanted me to be typical. Auditioned and auditioned and auditioned and got to the very last. But Fossey wanted Ruby's. I was offered the original understudy of Bifford, and I did not take it. So I said, no. That was good because God spoke him up very shortly thereafter up in Toronto, and they said, Schwartz had hired him. I love him. Hired him. So I get to go up to Toronto, replace Victor. I'm there for a couple of months, and they say, we needed Jesus in New York, coming to New York. And I played in New York for several years. Then left it, did other things, and then was brought back in to open the Broadway. It's an amazing story. Like, how different your life could have been had you not had been. You know, like, <laughs> obviously, John, not to big, big Wonderful things, of course. Things, but who knows yes. what might have happened. No, it's and true. it's just a great reminder for everyone out there that sometimes everything really does happen for a reason, and when you're miserable about not getting something, it, it can lead to something it, it truly does. I mean, because, you know, I, you know, I went home disappointed that I didn't get Pippin. But I didn't want second place, and I, I was really bummed. But look what it got me. It got me this incredible experience. So I knew what it was. Did I know it was going to be a phenomenon? You know, you really come out, you know, I mean, coming out on stage in Godspell, first of all, there were movie stars in the audience and all these people there. But it was, I mean, it was like you were in a spaceship, took off and took everybody with you. It was like this otherworldly experience. I can't really explain it, although those who have been a part of Godspell understand what that feeling is like in, in the house. But on stage, it was... But people were transported. I mean, it didn't. Ma- it almost didn't matter if we were tired and ended with, uh, say, four show weekend. Go out, and the people were like, "We're at Godspell," and they're all lit up, and the audience would take you. And um, you know, it never, ever remember not lifting off in that magical way. But let's get let's get back to the directing. Now, the first your first Broadway directing gig was this little play called "A Few Good Men." Is that right? <laughs> yeah. What happened to that writer? I don't know. He once uh, said to me, like, uh, oh, this, we did a reading of a few good men, and Aaron actually said to me, like, eh, this, this writer's going someplace. <laughs> this, this guy, he's right. got some talent, but I, I need to give him a few notes. Well, you know, we talked about causality, you know, which is like how you get things. And, you know, I was directing, because I now become a director, and I was directing anywhere they'd ask for it. And um, so I was directing Pump Boys and Dinettes and uh, the Middle Ages of Sharon Playhouse in Connecticut, almost as far as the Manitoba Theater. And, um, so I'm up there, and my stage manager, the guy named David Lansky, later went on to the ABT, but that movie was a shuffle like the rest of it. And he said, hey, I got this guy. He's hawking me. Thinks he wants to be a writer. He thought he wanted to be an actor. Now he wants to be a writer. He sells, I don't know, lemonade at the Broadway theaters. He's got this play, and he's a big fan of yours. He's like, God, so I don't know how many times. And now here, and I was working with you, and would you please read this? Of course. Give me a play by Aaron Sorkin called Removing All Doubt. A bunch of kids in college with this very Aaron-like figure who's kind of the trips master of this group of kids. And uh, the dialogue is sensational. It's supposed to be a mystery, and you get the end of the play, there's no mystery. 
But I said to him, look, you need to have this read. You need to hear it because it doesn't work. You need to hear how to fix it. And the way to do that is, okay. So we get actors together. We do a reading. Give them some notes. The reading goes very well. I say, good luck, kid. Leave. A year later, he said, Mrs. Scardino, remember me? Aaron Sorkin? Of course, Aaron, how are you? I got another play. This one has a producer attached to it. Proceeds to tell me that he handed the script to a producer named David Brown, and who said, I'm not producing uh, plays, I produce movies. And Aaron said, well, I want to do it as a play. Talk about Stones. So he partnered with Robert Whitehead. And they, Aaron dragged me in to meet Robert Whitehead, and David Brown says, this is the guy I want to direct the play. And they're like, and, um, you know, they said, well, how would you do it? Uh, what kind of set do you envision? I said, no set. And they're like, what? I said, no set. They're like a battleship. It's a deck of a battleship. Lights, sound, maybe the fence line across the back. That's it. Whitehead said, I like this young man. Just like that. <laughs> and that was it. I got the job. It's amazing because I get, there's something I want to make sure we go back and, and focus on brushed over so quickly, but a guy you've never heard of who can recommend it from a statement, and you're working now, I mean, you're doing stuff, <laughs> sure. you've got a career, said, will you read my cousin's play? <laughs> and you said, yes. Uh-huh. And you did it, and then you did a reading, which is, I think, so important to just do things at times, and just be open to these, because you never know when the guy calling you up is going to be Aaron Sorkin's You never know. You know, and my mother raised me to always be nice. You know, it's it's... You know, what did I have to lose? Nothing. I like David Lansky. He was a really good stage manager. And I figured if he was a nice guy, his cousin must be a nice guy. And, you know, but, and, you know, and it's another thing, too, which is that, yes, it was a role of the guys, but, you know, I read the play and I thought, this kid writes dialogue. I mean, this dialogue is snappy and smart. And, you know, I said to him, I can tell you're an actor because this is really playable. So, yeah, you know, be nice. And what, just tell me in this. I'll ask you my, my you're at a bar in Omaha question, which is you, you saddle up at a bar in Omaha and you're sitting next to someone that's never seen a play before in their life. They ask you what you do, you say, I, I direct play. They go, what's that? What the heck is that? What do you do? What does it do? What does a director do? Yeah. Well, director does a lot of things. One, one of the things a director does is he makes the space comfortable for everyone working on that production to do their best work. So to me, the director is like a, a synthesis way, like the middle, the cynosure of some spinning wheel that is this play, this production. The director's job is to take and support all the artists and inspire them, lead them, guide them, argue with them if necessary, always from a positive play. Good choice. That's a great choice. Hold on to that, because this is the second week. Let's do that on this other one. Find our way. So that what you then do, you're, you're basically you're like the conductor of a, of a great orchestra. You're a focus. Take all these people who incredibly, but on their own, don't make up the orchestra. You need the conductor to make that uh, symphony happen. So that's what a director does. He's like a conductor, pulls all those things together, and feeds them back out. Focuses them through an idea or a vision, something that, that makes it communicate. The, to me, the act theater is the act of communicating, transmission. The, the actors get the playwright's text in their bodies, in their souls, in their spirit, and the force of their playing transmits to every single member lands there. And it can't be removed by a surgeon. It stays there forever. And my brother once said to me when I was really hot about doing yet another performance of Cloudspell, and he said, you don't understand. You've done now 737 performances, and for you it's like I want to work again. He said that there's a person out there, and probably all of the people out there, who have waited and waited and waited to come see Godspell. This is the only time to see Godspell. They're going to go home, and that Godspell is going to be in their mind and heart forever, like Kismet was in mine. And it will always burn very brightly, and that's the great privilege you have to give the person. And so that's so that's what the director. To me, it, 
to me, it always has to be from a place of love. And when you do theater, you talk about you obviously went into that meeting, you had a very clear visual image of what that play was going to be. No set, like a battleship. Right. Is that how all of you, when you've ever directed play, that it, there's a strong visual that you come up with first? Is it yeah, usually, like a process? Yeah, usually it's something, as soon as I read, whether it's TV script, movie script, play script, there are sort of visual things that's happening in my imagination. If I can see it, and it's not even something I'm doing necessarily, but it says I read, takes a time on And if I can see it, then, then I have a sense about the world. I find that if I'm lost a lot, and sometimes, you know, it, it doesn't always, sometimes the more difficult work doesn't always easily open up to you because it's deep. It may take a couple of readings, but in one or two readings it'll come along. Yeah, so, so I guess visual is what happens first. So you brought up television, so let's talk about this a little bit because you've done what probably every single person working in the theater dreams about doing, which is somehow manage to take your career, sort of successful career in theater, and translate it to Hollywood. How did that come about? Where where did that offer come from? And what made you think you could actually do it? Well, a couple of things. One, when I was a kid actor, I, I did um, The Guiding Light. It was live, and, and it was four cameras. And um, because I was the kid, I got sort of easy access to the control room. I could stand on the floor next to the cameraman. I could ask questions, and they were interested in, you know, sharing their knowledge. So I was fascinated by what the director was doing. I was fascinated by what the cameramen were doing. Just what I never planned not to be an actor, but I was fascinated by that. So I, I asked a lot of questions. So I had that sort of foundation. When I was directing theater, a woman that I had acted with on the guy, I was six years old, played my mother, was now the head writer of a show called Another World. And she said, I've written this part for you. And I said, oh, I'm not acting anymore. I'm directing the theater. She said, I know, but I really want to do this part. I said, I, I'm not. She said, well, we'll give you this much. And I said, no, I'm really not. I said, well, how about we double that money? Finally, I said, look, okay, this is all great, but let me direct one. You know, tell the producers I want to direct one, and I'll, I'll sign up for it. So I did. And um, that, that was the deal I made. Six months in, the producers changed. The producer says, I'm firing you because you're too old to play opposite that girl you're playing. Opposite. I saw you in Godspell. I know how old you really are. I said, okay, but I have this deal to direct. And he said, it's pay or play, babe. You know, I can pay you all. Uh, okay. I slink out of the office. The next day, I get nominated for an Emmy, daytime Emmy, in the under-24 category. And I was about 30 something. So he calls me back in his office. I go, oh, sure, now I've got the Emmy. You want you want me to stay on? He said, no, 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 that's not You're still fired. But I was thinking about what you said about having a directing deal. And, uh, okay, I want to build my stable of directors. So long story short, six weeks later, I'm directing Another World. He puts me on a contract for two years. So... I made a transition. Now, this is important for theater directors. Multicam, sitcom, is multicam, meaning four cameras shooting at once in a proscenium world. Same thing with sitcoms. You have an audience and you have a proscenium based presentation in a three-wall set. And same with soap operas. And, um, and so it's an easy transition for a theater director to make, to understand how the cameras work, because you're basically staging in the same way we stage theater. Diagonals and triangles across the front and all, all the rest. So those things, the onslaught and diagonal, they all work for you. And then once you get the camera stuff down, that's great. So, again, the chain of causality rears its ugly head. Victor Garber, my pal, and, um, and Blair Brown, my other pal, we a new show in L.A. called Days and Nights of Molly Dodd for NBC. And I get a call from Blair, who I'd acted with in the park. And she said, eh, my producer hates all the directors out here. We've given your name. And you fly out here on your own nickel and meet him. So I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. Come out there. Never directed film. I go out there. Jay Tarsus is his name. 
and he said, um, and I, I gave him my little reel of soap opera stuff, like action scenes from soap opera. He said, what's that? I said, I must find soap opera. He said, I don't know. He said, here, just read this. Tell me if you think it's funny. Sit over there. And I go sit in the corner of his office, and I read the script. He said, so what do you think? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I like it. All right, you can direct it. I went, what? <laughs> he said, you can direct it. I mean, this might, I may be crazy, but Blair and Victor both say you're smart, so, okay. Not only did you direct it, but then I, he gave me two more. And then he said, the show's moving to New York. I live in L.A. I'm going to go back and forth, so you're going to be the supervising producer in New York. I said, Jay, I've never produced anything. He said, that's all right. You know, it's not that hard. Believe me. A lot of people miss town. Produce. You're going to be the So that's how that all came about. The unit production manager of that show goes off to start a new show for NBC, which is like run and gun cop show. He says, you've got to come and do one. I said, okay, sure. It's an hour long. He said, but we're like guerrilla TV. We're out there with handheld cameras. We're going to sell it. That was law and order. So you see, it's, it really is about your relationship. Very important that, you know, the group you come out of school with, the group you do a show with, you know, that you maintain these relationships. It's true. You obviously have great skill and talent because you wouldn't have been acting alongside people like Victor Garber, et cetera. Sure. But the relationships trumped it all. You were getting jobs not because someone was saying, oh, show, tell me about your diagonal, tell me about all this <laughs> right. stuff. It was like right. someone said you were great, so we're just not hired. Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. And, and again, you know, the old rubric, be nice, comes back. But the truth of the matter is, I am, because I started out, it was my playground. It was my backyard. It was growing up. It was my college. I had the best time. And I went in with, with all the sort of naivete, but also wonder and also joy of being a child. So I've never lost that. I mean, thank you. you know, and it, it's, it, in a way, I think these are all people that I work with that recommend me to other people. Because I go in and always have fun and have a good time, that that's more important than almost anything, you know, because you could say this guy may direct a little better than that guy, but you'll have more fun with this guy. It's a uh, very fortunate. So let's talk a little bit about the two mediums that you're both working in now: theater and, and, and sitcoms. Or oh, what's something that the theater world could learn from the television world? Is it the development, the production? What if you were coming back and could take one thing from Hollywood to how we do it here? What would it be? I would say that. One of the one of the things about the sitcom world uh, that is has in common with the theater world is they're uh, in front of a live audience, and uh, it, it doesn't matter really what it finally looks like on television so much as that it plays in front of the audience, and it is um, the process of working on a sitcom. You have five days to put a show up, and it, you're constantly working it, working it, working it. Then the audience comes in, and if they don't laugh at a certain joke, again they're comedies, so you know it's only applicable in comedy, but they're not some joke. Those writers are out there sweating to come up with new jokes because they're bombing. And I think that is one of the things. I think Broadway has to remember to serve its audience. I sat in the in the audience of a play, you know, and Broadway's been everything. You know, the fabulous invalid that we know as Broadway that has everything from historically boulevard comedies to cheesy musicals to great things like Hamilton and all the rest of it, and star-driven packages and all those things. When it knows its audience, works for its audience, that's when it's the most successful. It doesn't matter really whether it's great art or not. Great art to boot, like something like Hamilton, then bravo, all the way. You know? But I think that's important. Television being a mass medium, in a way. Um, and I think that is sort of what's happening on Broadway, in a way. You, you find that you know you need, you need brand names. You need things that the audience is going to want to see. And those things, hopefully God willing, feed the other shows that may not have the brand, but are worthy of catching their audience. So I would say that you know, the, the, what the television does not do well is serve a master known as advertising, 
And so it frequently sells out, you know, sells its ch- own child short to get the advertising dollar. Broadway never did that. It's never succumbed to that just because it is so expensive. It's tempting to do. But truthfully, it's really what, where is the audience coming from? Who are they? What about the writer? What separates a writer like Aaron Sorkin, who obviously was such an incredible playwright and then translated his art to the small screen very successfully? What advice would you give to playwrights that want to write for television? Or what do they need to write a poem? Well, you know, it's funny that uh, you talk to William Goldman, who described himself as a failed playwright. And Aaron describes himself as a playwright, even though it's been a while since he's done a play. So there is this thing that says the real work, you know, I'm actually a playwright. You know, this is just dregs. And it's true that being an audience medium and being something that has to appeal to the lowest common denominator, so the advertising dollars come in, that you do write some dregs. But if Shakespeare were alive today, would he be writing for two broke girls? You know, the only, you know, game in town was the blow, you know, or something like it. So, you know, I, I think it, we, we do our artists a disservice by saying, well, you, know, you write for television or you write for theater. So the truth of the matter is, in television, what you need to have is a common touch. You need to have, you know, an idea that will appeal to people, even if it's packaged in a very artful way, so like Atlanta, which is kind of like off-Broadway television. But the stories are very real, and they're about real people, and they're also very funny. Donald Glover is very funny, but Donald Glover got his start writing on 30 Rock for television. So, you know, you, but there's, can't discount it. You can't say it's not nearly as good as a play. It happens to maybe even touch the emotional pulse of the country even quicker than some playwriting these days. So, I would say, hey, don't limit yourself. I think you are one thing or another, and you don't write stories that want to do. think a writer's room could ever exist for a Broadway show? No. Why? Well, because, first of all, the writer, you need the writer's room because you're producing anywhere from 10 to 22 episodes uh, in the season. And that is a Pac-Man monster that goes faster and faster as the season goes on. Because not only, once the season gets going, not only are you doing the show that's in production, but you've got three or four in post-production at various stages that need to be attended to. And you've got three or four that are in the writing stage that need to be attended to. And it is like a plate spinner on the inside. Just all of this is going on at once. It's a circus. The theater, fortunately, is not like that. You know, you're working on one piece, and you have however long it takes you to craft that play, and then however long you might work with the director for that play to do rehearsal, and you have four weeks, you might go out of town, all that stuff. So you don't have the need that, because um, television is a hungry beast that eats young and a bit of a sausage factory, you don't have that need needing that assembly, which is really what a writer's room is. Now, the other thing that helps in television is because if it's a comedy, anything from show of shows, you know, on to two more girls or anything else, but you need jokes. And, you know, one person can only be so funny for so many hours of the day. So you have this group of people that all throw in jokes, and that's how you ensure comedy will be its sort of best you can be. But I don't think so. And I think also playwriting, you know, well, I just said, you know, writing is writing no matter where, you, where you're doing it. That is true if you are the sole writer. In television, in drama, frequently you are the sole writer. You might have one or two people massaging, you might have an executive producer who's a writer at weekend. But the drama is usually worth one person's script. And I think there's something about having a voice. It's what Aaron has been able to do in television, actually. But Aaron is crazy because he insists on writing every single one of the show. You know, he's a tired guy. That's why we haven't seen him on Broadway. <laughs> True, he has no time. But, you know, it is... I remember one day he said to me, he said, I don't know what uh, I'm going to write this week on the West End. I think I'm going to write about the president driving to work because that's all I do. I drive to work, I drive home. I have no other life. I have nothing else. I'm in the writer's room. So, but it's, it is a, it's a crime. What about acting for film and television versus acting for the stage? 
It's it's different. What I tell actors who have worked on theater and not gone on television or into the cinema yet is that, you know, they'll invariably, if they've been working for the second ballot company, they're going to be a little low. Eyebrow's going to go way up and the body's going to be engaged in a way and the voice is going to come up. And, you know, camera is like right in front of them. So what I tell them was imagine as if your head is rolled out onto the stage and it's the size of the proscenium and your chin ch- touches the deck and your head scrapes the curtain at the top. That's how big your head is. So how much work do you think you need to do to get this point across? All you have to do is think it, and the audience is going to know. Because, you know, a close-up, and particularly now that we've got you know, 65 new screens at home, it's really large. So it's a great place to practice your underplaying. Fast forward 20 years from now, which medium do you think is more successful, the theater, Broadway, or television? Depending on how you define success, I mean, the truth of the matter is that theater still, to this day, is the only where you sit in a group of people and have this common experience. Only be going live, whether that theater is in on Broadway or in somebody's backyard. There are a group of people on stage and a group of people sitting watching, and those two groups of people are having experience together. And it's that live transmission I talked about earlier. That's what makes it so resonant in the soul area. The... Television can't do it. Movies can't do it. You can have a communal experience in the movies, so you can have a group feel by sitting in the movies and, and experiencing together, but those actors aren't there. So you're not having that transmission that becomes the Godspell spaceship. So I think, in a way, in terms of that, that will never change. And it can never be taken away. You can say that, you know, the rubber becomes too expensive, or, you know, bomb hits Times Square, or whatever. But this kind of storytelling will always exist. The other will continue to go through its technological changes. The closest thing that may happen is that you'll go see a hologram of a play presented where you will sit in your living room and your friends can sit around in a semicircle or in 360 degrees and in the middle is a hologram of a play and that will be maybe close to that experience that we talked about. But again, not in the same space. You've achieved a lot of success in a lot of different areas throughout your life and career. Any little tips, life hacks? Do you do yoga? Do you meditate, have a fancy to-do list that you can share with us that keeps you on track, that is busy with as many plates that you have to spin. I have a clown suit at home. It has oh. a big S on it. <laughs> and I you ride, take it out. I wear, no, uh, actually, I am a meditator, which is not to say everyone should meditate, but I am a meditator. I've been a meditator for 40 years. 40 years? Yeah, and it helps with perspective. I'm 42, by the way. Uh, <laughs> so it, it, right after this bed, you went and started meditating <laughs> right. on how to... <laughs> you know, I do think it's I do think it's important. You know, a- acting to me is like pop sociology in a way. You study the human condition and you portray it. So you need to. It's it's almost like you need to be a witness to history. You need to be very plugged into what's going on and what people are feeling. And you need empath. You need to be attuned to the current time that's happening now in your world. You, but you need to stay at least a beat behind it because you need to be able. To portray that. In order to portray that or present it, you need to have a point of view. You have a point of view, you can't be in the middle of your own Michigas, as they say in Italian. So you need to work on yourself to the degree that you can sort of build that witness part of you. Learn to meditate, learn to do yoga. Learn to step back and be the witnesser rather than the experiencer. You need to be the experiencer too, so you can actually go on stage and experience it, but you need to be able to portray the human mission. That takes my last question, which is my Jake Lipton-like genie question, we call it. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin yeah. comes to visit you and says, Don, I saw you in Gothel. You were amazing. I want to thank you for 
those a thousand plus performances and all the other contributions you made to the theater were better off because of you. And I'm going to grant you one wish. What's the one thing about Broadway that drives you nuts? You're such a nice guy. What makes you angry, upset, makes you flip a table over, ask this genie to wish away? Prices. You know, how can we bring, how can we make the theater available to everyone and affordable? And that's why anytime someone tries to do it, it's always so worthy. You know, when I was a kid, I was going to the High School of Performing Arts over there on 46th Street, and I went to see Kirk Douglas and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest for $2.50. And $2.50 was probably my weekly allowance. But, and even back then, it wasn't that much. So, you know, uh, and standing room and all that stuff that we used to get. Is it still standing room? Yes. I didn't know. Sometimes uh, they sell out, and yeah. they're a lot more than two hundred and fifty. <laughs> they're the two hundred fifty, two hundred and fifty. But um, so that's you know that's like anything. That's a big societal problem. But it's so important to, to find a way to get theater to the people's hearts and lives without you know mortgaging your house to buy the ticket. How much will Godspell tickets in the I don't. They're probably twenty dollars. You know, uh, they put a little more room than the Broadway. But well, it's it's a good wish to have for sure. Thank you so much for everything you've done for the theater and done television as well. Thanks all of you for listening. We will see you next time. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget you have one more week and just one more week until Sunday, July 23rd to register for the Super Conference and save a couple hundred bucks. It's going to be a great time. Can't wait to see you there. Register today. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.